Hey, welcome to the NATO Sessions. I'm comedian NATO Green. This is my podcast. This is a production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. Today, my guest is Nagin Farsad. Uh, Nagin is most known recently for her new documentary, The Muslims Are Coming, which uh, came out uh, pretty recently on Netflix and and, uh, Amazon Prime instant player thing. Uh, She also did a documentary called Nerdcore Rising, which is also on Netflix. And she's worked with IFC and uh, Comedy Central and MTV and whatnot. Uh, and she's an all-around great person and good comic. Um, and uh, one of the things that we touched on uh, in the course of the conversation is uh, arts funding for comedians. Nagin has been fortunate and shrewd enough to get grants uh, for some of her work um, as a comedian. And it just it is a chip on my shoulder that comedians have just accepted that our our lot is to be purely on the entertainment track and we don't mess with arts funding and we're put off by figuring out nonprofit fiscal sponsorship and grants. And meanwhile, I see who gets public and private arts funding and, uh, you know, it's, it's never, any, there's a, there's a, there's a gap. We work just as hard on our art as, uh, as well, you know, anybody else. Uh, and we reach a lot more people than a lot of the uh, esoteric performance artists and dancers and visual artists that get that get arts grants, um, and uh, and you know we need to we need to fight for that money. F- funders and, and nonprofit arts organizations need to figure out how to support us and include comedians um, and uh, learn how to evaluate us. That's been one of the issues is that they sort of know how to they have a set of criteria that they're used to thinking about uh, mostly how sad something is and they have a hard time evaluating something as serious art when it's funny. Um, but we also, you know, if we got 10% of the money that goes into these big giant like ballets and symphonies and operas in our various cities, uh, we would, um, you know, these are all like ha- opera and symphony and ballet have all union jobs, well-paid, uh, big ticket prices. People make a living at that. And uh, we should get a piece of that action. Uh, and, you know, that's it's not a, a substitute for people who want to go into the mainstream television or whatever entertainment field, but uh, it certainly would open up more channels for us. Um, and in fact, this podcast is one such example being housed at the JCC. It's a collaboration between a comedian and a community and arts organization. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that there are more experiments like this all over the country, including me and that have nothing to do with me. So anyway, I just had to get that off my chest. Everybody, comedians are artists. We need to figure out how to get arts funding as well. Uh, and now, here I had a great time talking to Nagin Farsad. Nagin, the first thing I want to talk to you about is that uh, you grew up in Palm Springs. Ah, uh, yeah. And I don't know if we've talked about this, but but my grandfather is from Chicago and was stationed out in the desert in World War II in the military and ha- <laughs> since before I was born has wintered in, in Rancho Mirage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, and so it, my whole childhood, uh, once or twice a year, we would go down to spend time in Palm Desert. So like, I know relatively, people have told me, like, I know these weird things about Palm Springs, like people have told me that it's 30% gay per capita. Uh, <laughs> and that, uh, uh, but then like, out, I'm, my frame of reference is mostly the desert. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's sort of baffling to me why somewhere between this like allegedly the gay capital of California and Coachella, you know, is this patch of desert where old Jews go to die. But um, <laughs> that's like, that's Palm Desert. Uh, so 
I just wanted to I wanted to hear more about what like uh, like an indigenous desert person's experience of that region is. It's weird to grow up there, you know, because I was just like. Um, oh, like we don't have weather. Like that's just my life. And, uh, we have 362 days of sun and our neighbors are all gay. And that's, and then, and, and some of them are, um, retired and most of them are gay and retired. Um, and that, and I, I would play alone in the street. There were no other kids. That, that, that explains your, your glamorous fashion (laughs) sensibility is that. You you were a dress up doll for gay retirees, <laughs> kind of. But I was also around. But that the uh, the other interesting thing about Palm Springs is, is it has this like history from the fifties of like you know the starlets would come and you know be glamorous and there's this very big kind of you know oh this is where Marilyn Monroe did this and this is where Frank Sinatra did this and this is where Bob Hope did that and and Bob Hope still lived in town and Frank Sinatra still lived in town until he died and uh, you know and 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 it has this kind of old world kind of glamour to it and the mod houses and all things that as a child I did not realize were cool or different or interesting at all. To me, I was like, you know, thanks mom and dad, you're raising me in the armpit of America, you know, and that was my my main um, reaction to it. Um, and for, you know, and it's funny because, you know, uh, we'll talk about like, oh, what do we do? Like, Let's, um, hey, Nagin, like, what should we do? We're going to be in Palm Springs. Like, what do people do? You know, and they, people go to Palm Springs as this kind of like resorty destination. And I'm like, um, I would suggest like Denny's at midnight, you know what I mean? Cause that's what I did in high school. Um, so I don't really have like an adult understanding of what that town has to offer, but so many people from LA go there and, and it's now like, you know, it's, it's a bunch of really, um, stylish gay dude and hipsters. And please tell me you like lost your virginity at Joshua Tree. <laughs> I wish I could say that. I weirdly lost my virginity in Boston in a room where there were other people sleeping. So no, did not lose it in Joshua Tree. That would have been a better story. Um, so and then uh, and how did your parents get to Palm Springs? Well, my parents immigrated from Iran like right before the revolution, and we ended up in by the, by the way it's it, it it's i think it's super cool like there's something about like i've uh, that generation of iranian like yeah i love talking to people who say things like when i was in high school during the revolution i just think it's oh, a yeah. cool sentence to be able to pull off totally and and my um my aunt has a lot of like when i like when i was in college during the revolution which is like nothing but like it was closed a lot but yeah, so my parents immigrated right before the revolution, and um, we, you know, um, I was born in New Haven, Connecticut, but then we ended up in Virginia, um, in the sticks of Virginia, and uh, he had a, my dad had a friend, um, you know, he was getting his surgical residency, and he had a friend in Palm Springs who was like, dude, you gotta come out here, this is where all the heart attacks be at, and my dad was like, oh my God, like I'm in. And so that's basically why we ended up in Palm Springs is it was really good for my dad's career because my dad is a vascular surgeon and, you know, kind of like heart attacks and um, old people stuff are his currency. So, um, so, so, so does that's he work what at, what was it called? Eisenhower Medical Center? He does work at Eisenhower Medical Center Boom, and a desert it. hospital. <laughs> Look at your knowledge of the desert. Yeah. Also, people find it funny that we... 
uh, we who grew up in that part of the country call it the desert because it's like a string of desert cities. Um, and so, uh, you know, so yeah, the desert. Uh, yeah, it's such a weird place. Like, it's such a weird place. It's it's an entire region of people who are too old to be driving safely, but do so anyway. <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Every time you're driving there, that it feels like old people are like, you know, like, oh, this... This red light, it just happened, you know? Yeah. Like this this parking spot came out of nowhere. Like, that's kind of how they treat driving. It's like, the, it's like an obstacle course of just adventure. Um, it's, it can be very scary driving with them. Actually, uh, uh, but 10 or 12 years ago, my grandfather ran a red light, and we got, we got totally, we got totaled. We got thrown across the intersection. Uh, it was terrifying. Yeah, so, exactly. Um and 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 one of the things that I learned is that I I'm good in a crisis. Um, <laughs> uh, from that from that episode, like, you know, like he runs the red light, like it was like a rotor rooter truck slipped smash into the side of the car, threw us across the intersection. Uh, my wife instantly started screaming, and I like sprung into action. You know, and was like <laughs> directing traffic and, you know, getting help and all kinds of stuff. So, um, so I, w- I was, I had my only accidents as a driver and I don't really drive in New York City. So these are all sort of like high school stories is, um, I, I were all parking lot based. I just have some like depth <laughs> perception issues when it comes to parking lots. And so I had to like go into a parking lot and I scraped the wall or something. And I was freaking out cause I'm 16. It's my first, you know, I'm like using my, my parents are like letting me use this car. It's not a done deal. I'm still proving myself and I've already ruined the car, the side, entire side of the car. So I take it to the shop at the high school and overnight they fix it and I bring it back home and my parents never know until this podcast, they will have never known <laughs> that I ruined the car. So there we go. Nice. Uh, someone just has to tell them what a podcast is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, during the 1989 earthquake, my uh, mother's uh, uh, Shabbat menorah f- fell off the top of our refrigerator. Holy! And 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 was bent. That was that was the major crisis of the big earthquake <laughs> for us. And so I took it to my sh- high school shop class and using like a fucking milling machine and lathe, reconstructed <laughs> the brass stem of the menorah. Like a boss. Yeah. Like a um, Jewish boss. So. Uh, so what, like, like, are you a disappointment? Uh, to put it gently. Yeah. What do you, what, like, like I know, for example, uh, like there is a path that is, that was laid out for me, you know, that for me, like coming from a Jewish intellectual family, like it was sort of, you know, there, like at a, when I got into union activism, there was a point where my grandmother was like, couldn't you be a labor lawyer or a labor historian or a labor economist something with some more prestige exactly and like if i had decided to go to go to law school it would have been like a lot of or into academia uh those were the things that i felt like were the that was the the road that was laid out for me and it would have been a lot of work but in some ways it would have been the easiest thing in the world for me like it's it's the thing that i was built to be able to do Do, do you have a sense of what that path was for you 
you know, I'm really lucky because, I mean, I think every Iranian um, is expected to be a doctor or an engineer. And then in third place is lawyer. And then if you're really just a piece of garbage, you're a pharmaceutical rep. Like that is what, what where you, there. and then there's no other professions, basically. Um, and and is, is, that, is that equally true for men and women? Um, I would say that's equally true for men and women, although for women, their expectation is that like, you know, you have a career, you get all the academic accolades, um, but it doesn't ultimately matter in the end because you're going to be married. <laughs> so I think there's a little, I mean, they're, they're like, this is great. Our daughter's really smart and it's important um, that, but we, we still more than anything need her to have a husband. It's so, like your, your, your plumage to attract a mate. Exactly. Um, and uh, and so I think for me, I mean, the, so the weird thing is that my brother is much older than me. Um, he's 13 years older than me. So he was already, by the time I was graduating from high school, my brother was already a career professional. And he, what my parents learned about him was that, you know, though they really encouraged him and sort of even maybe pushed him into being becoming a doctor and he did he went for it he did it he was not happy as a doctor <laughs> and so when it was my turn to make all of those decisions i mean i made some of the right decisions right so like i was a double major as an undergrad in 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 theater sure but also you know political science and then i went to grad school um in public policy and um african american studies i got two graduate degrees that are i am now a comedian um but uh and, you know, and and not at like community college you <laughs> it was like all Ivy League all the way, right? Yeah, yeah. I went to Cornell for undergrad and I went to Columbia for grad um, because I was a real slacker. Uh, and, you, you know, and, and the thing is, like, those things made, I mean, me very happy. Like, I really had, a, a, I put ridiculous standards on myself. But it also made my parents very happy. I wouldn't actually know if they were very happy because I never heard anything like we're, anything like we're happy or proud of you so I don't that the jury's still out um but I think that those things made them happy and so um I'm still working on on the moment in which I think anything I've done will make them happy that is a lifelong goal um but you know it's I think the the thing is that I what I did was that I got the accolades, right? I got the fellowships and I got the scholarships and I did all that and I was president of the debate team and I did all of those things correctly so that when I graduated from grad school and then and took my first job as a policy advisor for New York City, um, I, you know, in that year managed to say, listen, I realize I'm on a career track position, Um but I don't. I want to be a comedian, and they were fine with it. And it wasn't out of the blue. I had been doing the doing comedy the whole time, so I would be like, you know, in grad school by day, but on stage at night. And I was always living this double life. And so by the time it came, you know, by the time I announced it fully, um, they were they were already, you know, it's like they they saw smelled it coming. Um, and now when they talk to their friends, they're like, yes, she is comedian. She's filmmaker. But you know, she went to Colombia for public <laughs> policy. So like they have this thing to like always, um, fall back on, uh, in the face of their friends who I guess they're embarrassed about. Right, right. My, my, my grandmother, when I became a union organizer, like the way that I became a union organizer was by getting a job 
at a bagel store and organizing a union there. Mm. And then I and then I got a job as a truck driver and organized a union of biking car messengers. Wow. And that's my hardcore. Gra- my grandmother had a hard time processing that and told people I was writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So uh, and so, and as, I see, and I actually think you probably should be writing a book about all of that. Uh, for the record, from, from your lips to God's ears. Okay. Uh, so the um, uh, I I'll be accepting offers of advances uh, <laughs> immediately. Um, so as a senior policy adv- analyst for the state of New York, city of New York, it it was you. You were one of the people responsible for making sure that nothing gets done. <laughs> <laughs> it was me. It was not me. No, you know what? I was working for a city agency called the Campaign Finance Board, which was really, I mean, in terms of like an aging agency that is really um, has a, a, a discrete set of um, mandates and a, a budget to fulfill that mandate and, and really get the work done, which is basically leveling the playing field for candidates. And it's such a, a huge issue, but the what was what what no agency in that position could really tackle is like a billionaire mayor, you know? And so it's like, that's great. There, we did level the playing field for a lot of elections. Um, but you know, Bloomberg was still an undeniable force. Now, look, I mean, a lot of, you know, Bloomberg has a great record in, in many respects. So I'm, I, I don't have anything against him, but, um, it is, I think money in politics is such a big issue. You can say it. He's, he's a Jew. <laughs> no, but you know what? Honestly, some of the best, like some of the best, like policies came out of that administration, like the ban on smoking, which then became like an uh, an international trend. Um, there's some great public works projects, uh, the High Line, whatever, like the East River Park, whatever. All these things happened during his administration. I know he's not the only guy, but still, like it was. It, it, there are some impressive things. But, you know, I still get angry thinking that a billionaire can buy an election, and they can. And they're, and, and I was working, you know, um, at the campaign finance board, and, and, anal- and basically my job was to, like, analyze the numbers and give, like, bigger picture um, analysis on, like, whether or not the program is working. So th- that's the other thing I think, you know, people, like, like to talk so much shit about um, – public servants and they you know and having been one I know how much work goes into it and I know how how important the mandates were to these people how this like 50 person agency works so hard and so tirelessly on such a thankless job and it may, and it ends up making me really mad that people don't you know people just view some public services like yeah you're just trying to run out the time so you can get a pension or whatever and it's like uh, you know, or there could be some, you know, nobility in, 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 in their motivation, um, which I feel like for a lot of, a lot of people there, there really was. And, and are you, as someone with like a master's degree in public policy and who worked in, in local government, like, do you just have this, are you, uh, do you have it loaded? Like if, if, is there some policy issue that like I could go <laughs> you and you would just like, oh man. Uh, you know, zoning, right, uh, I'm right. all about it. <laughs> you know, debt financing for uh, public works projects, totally. that's my jam. Uh, corporate, yeah, development zones. Um, I um, it used to be like that, definitely. I used to be really up on every, you know, local initiative. Like, what does it mean? How can it affect people? Um, and that's, you know, and, and that was my focus in grad school was urban man, which uh, was city urban management. Um, but 
uh, nowadays I can't, I don't really, I, I, you know, I have to, I have to have equal parts, you know, Shia LaBeouf jokes and equal parts, you know, city planning jokes. You know what I'm saying? I Uh can't, I have, like, I literally spent the week writing on a logo show, um, and I, none of my public policy credentials come into play in a job like that. They just don't. I have to know about, like, pop culture, I mean, essentially. And and I'm sure you feel the same pressure of, like, being a comedian Who's, who is a political comedian um, or like I like to call myself a social justice comedian, but uh, also, I mean, has to have mainstream credibility and has to be able to do mainstream jobs like for Viacom. And that means, you know, what do you know about Justin Bieber right at this moment? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I always think, of, you know, I feel like as, as a, I, I think of myself not as a political comedian, but as a political person who is a comedian. Ah, yes. Uh, um, which is probably a bullshit distinction, but it makes me feel better <laughs> I about like myself. It, I like it. Uh, but the, uh, you know, that I feel like it's, it's like that thing that people say about, was it Fred Astaire and Grace Kelly? Like, like your jokes have to be as funny as dick jokes, but about injustice yeah um you know and people have this idea that like when people think about you know the greatest comedians of all time like you know lenny bruce or richard pryor george carlin whatever they're social critics and don't really have a sense that like you know comedy's not looking for that particularly like the like the lower tier of comedy is not all yeah rife with social criticism it's a lot more justin bieber yes the 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 you know the the comedy that pays the bills I mean, for sure, is that is right. is not littered with social criticism. <laughs> how did you how did you start in comedy? Um, I mean, honestly, like it's funny because people ask me like <laughs> that. People assume that I was like a really gregarious, like wacky, clownish child, um, and I was not. I was actually very like quiet probably on the spectrum you know I just didn't speak very much for like the first 10 years um and it to the point where like I think there were you know, preschool teachers were concerned that because I was living in a tri- like a trilingual home we spoke Farsi and Azerbaijani whatever because of part of the of Iran that my parents are from they speak these two languages um, so that, that I was confused about language and all of this stuff, um, because I was just pretty quiet. And then it was, it wasn't until <laughs> that, 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 that sounds like, like deep cultural sensitivity to be like, oh, she must be confused. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe you're boring. Have you thought about that? <laughs> maybe you say something interesting. She'll talk to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Preschool teacher. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it was, it wasn't until I went, and this is, I feel like this is so textbook in some ways is like, it wasn't until I took my first drama class in high school that I realized that like it, I can speak out loud and um, and that in that it matters and that it can be fun and that I don't have to live in this ridiculous shell. Um, and it was, I mean, on it and since from that moment, and I really credit like my high school drama teacher, Miss Rosemary Mallet, be it who I still keep in touch with, um, because you know that that changed my life and it made me, um, 
made me more and more unafraid of things. And so uh, I just continued that in college. And then I moved to New York. I was in a sketch comedy troupe. I was in two sketch comedy troupes. One was called Three Jews and a Persian. Oh, that'll give, give you a little um, indication of the makeup of that. Um, and, and was it Three Blacks and a Persian? <laughs> <laughs> Were they ironic Jews? No, it was it was, it was actual three Jews. Um, one of them who went, who went on to to like win four Emmys at the Daily Show as a writer, um, and uh, another one who's who's written books and it's been published, um, you know, in, in various journals as a, a really phenomenal prose writer. Um, and uh, and then uh, and I was in a duo called Madam Funny Pants. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I was really hardcore into sketch. And what I learned about sketch is that you, there are, like, you just can't earn any money doing that. <laughs> like, you, you are not going to monetize in sketch comedy. It is very, very difficult. Like, so your real only skill is just to be able to, like, audition as an actor. It's just to be kind of seen, you know, see yourself as an actor in that sense. Who happens to do this thing on the side which won't earn you any money? Um... And I, I wrote a solo show, which people confused for stand-up and then started booking me on shows. And that's how I became a stand-up comic because they, because they were like, we're doing this thing at Gotham. Do you want a spot? And I'd be like, sure. And I was like, they call them spots. You know what I mean? I didn't know. <laughs> and <laughs> I just started. So that's how I started, like completely fraudulently taking pieces from the solo show I had written that was in the, you know, New York Fringe Festival. And then uh, and then I would, I would do little pieces from it and string it together until I, I realized, oh, okay, this is how you start doing stand-up. Like, you could tell a joke or you could tell a short story that the, the, you know, the story has to be more condensed, the punchlines have to be closer together, whatever. And I just figured it out. So I kind of skipped the whole and also because there you know so much of the skills are you know transferable from sketch into stand-up I skipped the really awkward phase of like bringer shows and like all of that whole barking and all that thing I I sort of weirdly skipped it through this kind of like loophole this comedy loophole but um but that's uh that's how I started were you a comedy fan you know, and that's the thing. I was not. I was not a comedy fan. I did not grow up like watching SNL religiously. I did not grow up like listening to albums. I mean, you hear that story a lot of like, I grew up and I was I was obsessed with the Richard Pryor album or whatever. And I don't have any of those stories. It wasn't really until I started doing stand-up that I started listening to stand-up. And now I feel, I like, feel that- like I own so much more, you know, and I'm more into it and I'm more nerdy about it now than I ever was, like, growing up. I, f- I feel like that's that's that may be a more common version for people who are the children of immigrants. Like, you know... Ali Wong has the same story. Like Ali and I started together, and it always she would always be like, "Who is this Steve Martin you're talking about?" Um, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I think part of that too, in, in the immigrant parent thing, is like I had really ridiculously strict rules about what I was allowed to consume and who I was allowed to hang out with. I mean, I conducted my high school life in secret. Like my social life was a big 
just secret from my parents and what I could get away with. And it was all normal. I mean, and there's, I wasn't doing anything crazy. I was like a straight A student. So it was all within a nerd realm. So that tells you how strict my parents were. Um, and I think part of that was like not, I didn't like listen to loud Western music, which is what we still call it in my home, living in the United States. I didn't like, you know, it's not like I was like blaring like new kids on the block or whatever in on my stereo because that why I didn't quite feel like that was allowed so there's so much of the you know people will make pop culture references from the 80s and 90s and I don't get it sometimes and it's because I just wasn't allowed to have it so uh so there are like these big holes and I think comedy was definitely one of them is there an example of something that that as a kid you experienced as being like incredibly like lurid or you know uh, some something that you were into that you were like, oh, this is an edgy thing that my parents can't know about that would well, now seem really like tedious. Yeah, like I mean, so so like I said, I, I got away with a lot. And one of the, you know, I remember like I wasn't allowed to watch MTV, but when they weren't around, I did. And I remember watching The State, and that I remember thinking like, I don't know what the fuck they're doing on mainstream networks. But this shit is like where it's at. And so the state for me was like a formative show that made that the absurdism and all that stuff. I could I I feel like I had never seen that before. And it was and it felt really exciting. And that I think was probably um, one of the most memorable things. And uh, and so what was the solo show about? The solo show was about a trip I took to Iran for my cousin's wedding and about her marrying and like me being there and what it meant and the political climate and like my relationship with a with a family because everyone I have is in is in Iran. My parents are the only people that got out and um my parents I have one aunt, but I have, you know, I have probably I have like something like nine more aunts in Iran and like two uncles and uh, I have a gajillion cousins um, and second cousins and all of that stuff so the um, everybody is there and and I think it there's always this weird feeling for me of like and then they and they look at me like oh you know tell us about America um, and what's it like? And I'll, you know, and I would I smuggle in like Bjork CDs uh, because I was I wanted to give them the cool things because I felt like they were probably not getting Bjork over there, and and that and and it felt um, and it, there's like a guilt that like I get to just buy Bjork, you know what I mean? I get to just go to a record store and be angsty and gothy. And, you know, and I get to have this phase and you guys don't get to have it. You know what I mean? And, uh, and that, I think there's a lot of guilt for me still like in that. And I think, and that, so the show was an exploration of that, like through the lens of this like wedding. I mean, it's a comedy, but you know, obviously, but it, you know, but that, but I dealt with some shit. And are you close to any of those cousins? I mean, I, you know, I would like, I would love to be closer. I mean, I haven't been able to go back since like anything of mine has been broadcast. So, um, I, you know, I can't see them. (laughs) So it's hard, you know, it's hard to be, it's hard to be, uh, to be close that way when you're, you know, so far away from people and when you really, and they can't come here. It's too expensive. They're, you know, my parent, there's a lot of Iranians 
that left, they left with a lot of money and they, you know, a lot, they were able to bring lots of their family members. And that's a really common story. Um, and they, and they started out affluent. My parents are not that story and their families are not that story. So, um, it's not, it's not, it's not always possible for, for my, there's most of my family has not been able to travel to the United States. It's not feasible. Hmm. So I, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is um, that you, you'll, I'm sure you'll tell me if I'm wrong that I presume has nothing to do with with uh, Muslim heritage is Nerdcore Rising, <laughs> um, which uh, because I've known Gabby Alter since we were teenagers, yeah, because like you know Jews of our generation in the Bay, you're just gonna know each other, yeah. Um, so, uh, but the uh, I loved it. Like, Thank I you. mean, it was, I, I just, you know, I, I could give a shit about the music in some ways, right. but I thought it was, it was a very sweet story. Thank you. Uh, like see, seeing people who feel like they don't belong anywhere, find something to connect to that they felt like a kind of art that feels like spoke, speaks to them and a place to belong and seeing people who feel like they don't belong anywhere, get excited about being, having a bigger community. I thought it was just a lovely way of get, telling that thing. Yeah. And so I wanted to hear more about how that came about. You know, um, so yeah, you mentioned Gabi Alter, who's a really brilliant um, composer here in New York City. And um, we, so we have had a show, we've done iterations of it. It's been in development forever. A music, two-person musical called The Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, a romantic comedy. And I, I'm like really ridiculously proud of the show, but in the, in, in, in it's probably one of the most heartbreaking things that I've ever written because I, I just don't know that it'll ever see mass audiences <laughs> the way I want it to. Um, just because the musical theater world is so weird and slow and difficult and the, the, the subject matter is really like dangerous. People view it as something dangerous. Even the show itself is not dangerous. It's pure comedy. I think it's very, very even. Um, an Iranian and a Jew wrote it. I have no dogs in the race. You know what I mean? It's, uh, it, I, you know, but, but that's the, the, the challenge is getting a show like that, like really made. And in one of the, um, you know, in one day during rehearsals for this show, we were going to put it up, um, a version of it up. Gabi was like, oh, can we tune in and listen? I'm in this nerdcore band. And like my, um, you know, the rapper is going to be on NPR. And I was like, oh, or, you know, it was just WNYC. I don't think it was a national show. And I was like, sure. So we listened to this interview and there, he's explaining nerdcore hip hop and what it is. And I said to Gabi, someone should make a documentary about this. And I didn't expect for that person to be me. But then that's, you know, that's what happened. And then my, and then I got, I ended, I ended up doing like one of my first stand up gigs was like opening, like one of real gigs was like opening for Al Franken. And he wasn't even really, he wasn't doing like comedy. He was just sort of speaking, but I was warming up the crowd. And that night, I was drunk on power. Like I was like, I open for Al Franken, bitches, you know, and he was like <laughs> running for Senate and whatever and all this stuff. So I felt very special and I um, I got drunk and I ran into MC Front a lot who was who was at the time and, and still is, I guess, the kind of um, godfather of nerdcore hip hop. And I was like, 
listen, uh, Damien, I want to make a documentary. I want to feature your band. And, and he's like, what, who are you and what credentials do you have to even be turning on a camera? Because I didn't know how to turn on a camera at that point. And, and I was like, yeah. And you were like, I have a master's degree in public <laughs> policy. <laughs> Exactly. But I was just like, I just opened for Al Franken, motherfucker. What can't I do? You know, and that is, and, and he was just like, okay. And, and literally did not know how to use a camera, did not know anything about post-production. How do you put together a movie? Like, how do you raise funds for a movie? How much do these things even really cost? You know what I mean? Like, I had no sense, but, um, but it was, it was becoming increasingly clear to me that, like, the, that nobody gives a shit about an Iranian-American Muslim female in the casting room. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're not like, you know what this show needs? More ethnic diversity. Like, that's not necessarily a conversation that's happening. And it's still not happening. And it felt like at the time I was just sitting in casting offices, like, trying to get paid. And, and nobody cared. And then I was like, I was like, well... I, there's so many things I can do and that's when I started writing for shows and that's when I started directing and I was like I need to diversify um, and not view entertainment as just like you know trying to get on TV because no one cares that I want to get on you know no one cares so that's when I started making my own media and then and this movie became a challenge for me because I wanted to make a documentary that was funny and I and I was, I was like, I am going to try and do that. And it's, you know, I'm going to move this, I'm going to make the doc comedy genre a thing and move it away from like the kind of boring, like, you know, educational thing that people associate with the word documentary. And, uh, and that, that's what the, you know, the goal of that movie was. And it would, you know, and, and, and I was, again, like I had no credentials, no one gave a shit, but like, I tenaciously, you know, I was like, Weird Al Yankovic has to be in this movie. He has to be. And everyone said no. His his managers and the publicist said no. Everyone, like, and then I would go back and I would be like, please, please, please. And then finally he said yes, you know, and I managed to attach him and, like, Prince Paul and a couple of, like, names, you know, in order to get the funding, in order to, like, make the movie, in order to for anyone to actually give a shit about the movie. So um, that's how that went down. And... And uh, so, and I use like still on someone's Rolodex of like people to call as a talking head about nerdcore hip hop. <laughs> I was definitely for a couple of years there because it came out in 2009. And um, immediate, like afterwards, I ended up getting like a job as the, as the like nerd correspondent basically for IFC. And it's so funny because like. And you were like, hold on, everybody. I don't, I, I'm not the nerdcore girl. Ev- exactly. <laughs> Everyone assumed that because I made a documentary about nerds and I hung it. And to make this documentary, it was like at every like nerd convention. I was like, I was at PAX and I would hang out with gamers. And so I knew a lot about these people. I did not know a lot about the games they played and the gadgets that they were obsessed with. Like, I mean, that's what. And so they were like, come and be the tech correspondent you know, and I'd be like, sure. And so I was sort of expected to like have a lot of, you know, and I think I probably know more than the average person, you know, because of that exposure, the nerdcore exposure. But, um, I am not like, I'm a nerd in many ways, like, 
you know, showing up early to things and then also being like, you know, a relentless like grade hound. But I'm not a nerd in the like, I never play video games. I just don't. It doesn't interest me. And, uh, you know, and I wasn't, you know, and I love MC Front a lot. Um, and I love a lot of the people that are in the movie, like as artists, and I think they're brilliant. Um, but I'm not out there like looking for more nerdcore hip hop or anything like that, you know? Right. So, so one of the things that this raises that I wanted to talk to you about is like, there. I feel like in the world of comedy, there are a couple things happening simultaneously right now, um, in the sense that like there, you know, there are and have been and continue to be people going, you know, what we would think of as like a mainstream route through television and movies and whatever, right. where where the big money is and the bigger audiences are. And then there's sort of parallel to that this whole conversation about how new media has created this sort of possibility of DIY comedy um, uh, you know and direct to fan distribution and right. so on and so forth and so like you cannot be a household name and not be a millionaire but maybe you know have uh, like figure out how to connect to some fan base and I think MC Frontalot is a good example of someone who does that yeah. who has has a fan base that they perform for and they make a living at it and that's their business and they don't need to be you know on fucking Macklemore. Yeah, completely. Um, <laughs> so, and I feel like that's happening in comedy too with podcasts and YouTube channels and direct distribution and self-produced tours. And so there's sort of, and you have, having done work with uh, IFC and MTV and, you know, some writing, you've sort of been on both sides of that ledger. Yeah. And and then there's a third column that I feel like, you know, has it sort of bothered me that comedians aren't exploring more aggressively, which is... Um, uh, claiming the space of arts funding. Yes. Like that there's public and private arts funding. And periodically I floated this thing of like, comedians, why aren't we going for arts funding? Like they give all kinds of buckets of cash to the fucking ballet and the opera. Yeah. What do they <laughs> yeah. do that we don't do? Uh, and people are like, man, there are too many strings attached. There are too many ho hoops to jump through. And I've always been like, more than with NBC. Right, you know? right, 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 right. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm curious to think about, to, to just hear from you about your experience of like traversing those different categories of being a, a, a comic entertainer and, and the hyphenate world. Right. Um, and and what, what you feel like you've learned about it, your perspective on, on what that means for... for well, it, it's funny because I, um, so I'm uh, included a lot, like as you are in these kind of like progressive circles where like heads of foundations will show up or, you know, nonprofits that commission work will show up and you're right. Like they view, you know, they're not necessarily looking for comedians to commission work. They're not looking at comedians to like give their grants to, you know, that's not, this has not classically been. Um, a part of their thing, and I and 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 I, I remember saying once to to the executive director of a foundation, um, if I wanted to apply for a grant so that I could develop like an hour of material on immigrant immigration rights, um, would that be something you guys could fund? Like, can you see a world in which that happens? And they were like, well. Not really. Like you have to frame it in a way that it's leading to a thing that's recognizable as like more traditional theater. You know what I mean? And so, and so, I think it, it's possible. There, are, you know. Do, they, but, do you think they just prefer things that are sad? <laughs> I think they prefer things, and, and I think it's definitely shifting. I because I have received some grants at this point, and I 
feel definitely more comfortable in that world. And I feel definitely more comfortable inserting myself in that world. And part of that has been like the, you know, the, the Ted fellowship. Um, part of that has been places like, uh, you know, the opportunity agenda that like actively like brought me in and the creative change people. And they do it, you know, that they, you know, and they, they, they work with like people like Sundance and creative capital and, and Tribeca. I think the only reason I'm more comfortable in this world than the average comedian is because I make films as well as doing stand-up. And so I, 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 I know the language of like what a grant wants to see is that you're working on a rec- an identifiable project. And for stand-up, that's very complicated, right? Um, and uh, But I think there's ways of doing it, you know what I mean? And keep it, you know, I, I think what what the what the arts funding world needs to do is is go more into mainstream venues so like ballet is a very highbrow thing what else can you be funding that's maybe accessing some more universal audiences and you know and and comedy is that thing you know what I mean and so I think arts funding needs to move a little bit more towards us and then we need to move a little bit more towards them and you're absolutely right I feel like comedians are completely not taking advantage of this type of funding and and we should be and how much do you think it's uh, it's just about it, that it's just a matter of learning like i feel like we've seeded that world and just have accepted that you know particularly for stand-ups that we live in the world of commercial entertainment and that you know our baseline is babysitting drunks mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. how is it do you think it's it's that there's just a big issue of like us not being comfortable in, in that scene and not having the relationships and being known to those people or uh, or are there other obstacles? I think, you know, I think it's definitely that we're pushed along a track that involves, you know, oh, you try and get on the, uh, I don't know, NBC showcase and then you try and, uh, you know, you try and headline these clubs and you try, you know, we're like stand-up has this sort of like track we're not no one is talking to us about this this kind of funding and I think that's probably um that's probably a big thing but I you know when you talk to like an a visual artist I mean that is they know everything about that they are like look you know they have an administrative apparatus that's just designed that's just designated for grant applications you know and that um and I you know that's because they're brought into the fold and I think also because and bless them like some of their stuff is more experimental it's just not going to have the same kind of commercial power there's this idea that at some level stand-up has going to have more or just comedy in general is going to have more commercial leveraging power that and 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 a gallery opening of like experimental works you know what i mean and video installations that like some people just completely don't understand that that work might not have that same power you know but what right. the what the functionally the a dirtbag comedian and a dirtbag artist are both dirtbags who can't earn any money. You know what I mean? Like right. that functionally is what's actually happening. So, you know, so we should be kind of going after some of the same funding. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, and pe- yeah, people just have no sense of it. Like I, I run into people all the time who are like, oh, I saw you on the cover of the paper. So therefore you must be a, a rich successful exactly, comedian yeah totally, you know? totally. Um, yeah people assume like that I have films on Netflix that I'm just rolling in it you know <laughs> like <laughs> oh no oh that's not how that works sir uh, so and when you when you talk to uh, so here's my I, can I ask a, a specific and technical question Please. about arts grants because uh, I've looked at some arts grants 
And I feel like one of the questions that they want to ask in in grants for for artist individual artist fellowships or documentary film or whatever that comedians generally have no sense of how to respond to is how you talk about uh, evaluation oh, and yeah. impacts and outcomes. Yeah, in a in a way in, that translates what we do as comedians into something that means anything to arts funders. Yeah, metrics. Like the yeah. fucking outcome. <laughs> People laugh. What more do you want? <laughs> I talk. People laugh. Done. <laughs> right. Fewer people left the show offended. Um, right. The metrics are like a huge part of those applications. Like you have to show not only that you're like, I'm going to do this project, um, but you have to show that you're concerned with distribution. You have a strategy around it that you can gauge um, outcomes and that you have metrics to gauge those outcomes. And and I think, you know, the nice thing now is that like you can cite shit like Twitter and Facebook and you can you can actually look at the Google analytics of your website. There are ways that we can actually track our impact on the um, public conversation. And um, it's a gross way of all it's sort of like it's sort of like your clout score or something, you know what I mean? Is like what the grantee grantors wanna know, um, in some ways. But but I mean there's ways that I think we could track it and then you know, and talk about outcomes. Um and yeah, I mean, it's hard. But there's also like, did I sell out? Like, was I able to like use part of this in an online capacity to, you know, broaden the reach? And I don't know. There's there's so much, I think, that you can say now that you probably couldn't have said like 10 years ago. Right, right. Um, I uh, So I watched Muslims Are Coming on Netflix. Um, for doing welcome. that. And then... Uh, <laughs> Sitting through that and- abomination. <laughs> Uh, it was, it was, it was a trying time. <laughs> um, so, and, and so then, uh, and I never do this with Netflix, but then like out of curiosity, I went and looked at the reviews uh-huh, uh-huh. and people, Which I have fucking not done. Ha- people hate you. Uh, <laughs> like it's, it's, it was incredible to me. Cause I was like, you know, like I, I was like, oh, I wonder, I wonder how, how people re- are reacting to this on Netflix. And uh, so okay, so Muslims are coming is a documentary that you did with Dino Badala, where uh, you, some Muslim comedians go and travel around America, and you have a lot of famous smart people saying famous smart things yeah. about Muslims and comedy in America and being stupid. You um, you said it very clearly. That's a good. That's a good log. That's a line. good summation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There it is. So uh, so and and like I was like, huh, three and a half stars. I wonder what that means. And basically, what it means is that it was like all five stars and one star. Right. And the five stars were like, oh, this is really timely and helpful, and I enjoyed it. and It was entertaining. And one and the one star was like, I hate these people. These people are it, it's a it, they're a fifth column within America. You know, <laughs> like. Uh, you should have an intern just go through and flag them as inappropriate comments because they're not critiques of the film. Right. They're just like, they're they're just like the reason that you made the film, you know? Right, right, right. Um, (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yet more evidence that the film needed to be made. And, I mean, and the degree, like there's a a section in the film that's pretty heavy, Mm -hmm. I mean, as much as a, a comedy film gets, about how women react to you yeah. and the sort of the, the challenges of being a, 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 an Iranian female comedian and 
and like that you know nobody had shit to say in the in the comments that i read about dean or preacher moss or any of the other comments right but it was like this fucking uppity mouthy broad to get nagin who does she think this knockoff sarah supply it was like jesus everybody <laughs> i mean and it's funny because janine garofalo says in the movie it is very easy to marshal cultural hostility against women and when i see comments like that it's like Guys, did you not see the part in the movie where Janine Garofalo was criticizing you guys for finding it so easy to just hate the one woman in the movie? And it's right. like, why? <laughs> why do you continue to do this? What, have I, what am I doing that's so completely beyond what you can handle? I don't, I don't know. It makes me exhausted. They, uh, they probably heard Janine say that and were like, that reminds me. I have some <laughs> shit to get off my chest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know it's was there a question there or uh, or do you uh, well i i mean i th- there there was a uh, no there probably wasn't a question there <laughs> i was just like i i was sort of still stewing over how appalling it was and uh uh wanted to know how, how you felt about it we yeah when kamau and janine and i were on tour we um went to dearborn yeah uh dearborn very michigan arab population very arab population uh and like the big lesson of our time in in dearborn is that arabs are like all people in the sense that their suburbs are boring right Do you <laughs> yes, know what I mean? yes like dearborn is just another boring Amer- it yeah. is the most arab city in america and is another boring suburb right except With that people malls. eat yeah eat falafel instead of applebee's agree you know what i mean yeah uh but otherwise it's and like and we went to the Arab American Museum, and it was a very nice museum. But it was a lot of like, uh, y- you know, you know that there are Arab tennis players, and and <laughs> and we could just Im- imagine, you know, at white Americans being like, I had no idea yeah, right. they knew how to play, you know. <laughs> uh, totally, totally. Uh, so yeah. and, and so the thing, the thing that I wanted to share with you and ask ask your your reaction to. Is that so? We go to the Islamic Cultural Center, which I think is the biggest mosque in America in Dearborn, and we're talking to the interfaith coordinator guy there, and he said this thing, and he said it a couple times because he was this very sort of soft-spoken, gentle guy, and he said this, uh, and it was like clearly he knew that he was saying something provocative, which is, and I can't couldn't tell if he thought it was real or if he was, but he he kept saying September the 11th was good for Muslims because people. had paid attention to us and had to learn about us for the first time. Oh. Yeah. And and I wonder what you think about that remark. I mean, that's really fucking sad, but um I think you know, it's funny because people always talk about September 11th as like the thing that brought Muslims to, you know, awareness of Muslims to the United States. And I don't know if it's because like I my parents were you know, in Virginia, I was a baby, so I don't really know what was going on. But uh, my my brother was around during the Iran hostage crisis and, you know, going to school, getting beat up, being called names, whatever, because of the Iran hostage crisis, which to me is like the thing that brought Muslims to America, you know what I mean? That brought awareness of Muslims in America. And um, so it's like, it's funny. I think I've always felt it, And I've always felt like people wanted to know or needed to know, or there was always like some vague, like curiosity, fear, whatever. And I think that's a vestige of our, 
our botched relations with Iran. Um, and I, and, and so I don't, uh, I don't view 9-11 as like the only reason, you know what I mean? That, that, uh, Americans have like a fear of, uh, the Muslim world, but it is the biggest one in recent years, obviously. Um, but you know, we also, you know, we, there, there's been other incidents, you know, there's, you know, in, in the last 20 years that like, um, would give people pause and then going back to the, to the Iran hostage crisis. So I feel like, um, so I feel like the statement is not true, basically, but also it's really it's like that's just a stupid. I feel like that's a stupid thing to say, or it's a sad thing to say. You know, um, I don't. You know, I don't, and I don't. I don't think anyone should be like. It's not like Equatorial Guinea is like. You know what we need to do to get on the map is <laughs> something horribly <laughs> violent. You know what I mean? Like, so that our culture is better understood. You know what I mean? Like, so uh, I don't know. It's not a good. It's not a good tactic. And what, so with, with the Muslims are coming, what, what were the, what were the, what were the goals for that enterprise? And how do you feel like the goals evolved between concept from conception execution? You know, like the, the goals for me were, it's, it's funny because I inhabit like a, just a slightly different like space on account of the vagina than, um, than, you know, most of the other comics in the movie. And so my goals were sort of like threefold and, you know, and, 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 and weird because one of the goals is like, guys, Muslims are on a spectrum. Everyone, you know, there's secular ones, there's conservative ones, just like all And to be clear, not, not the autism spectrum. Not the autism spectrum. (laughs) Just the, yeah, the religious spectrum. And, and it's, and it's okay. And like, remember like, you know how like Jerry Seinfeld isn't like, you know, a hardcore practicing Jew. Like we've got Muslims like that. Woo. You know what I mean? Like, it's just sort of like, let's all calm down and view this religion in this, with the same lens that we view Christianity and Judaism, whatever, and Catholicism. There's lapsed Catholics, but they, you know, let's just do that, but do it with, with Islam. Why can't we do that with Islam? Why do we have to put it in this other category? You know what I mean? But P and PS, we're all from the same fucking thing you know we all grew out of Jews so it's sort of like why can't we all have the same kind of um, cultural benefit of the doubt uh, and so that's one of the, the one of the goals I mean all, other goals are like dispelling stereotypes you know we're asked constantly why don't we denounce terrorism so that's one of the things that we really wanted to address um, and um, and we really wanted to have a conversation because the the fact of the matter is the country is between like two and five percent Muslims. Like that, you know, we don't actually know what the numbers are, but the numbers are very small. So it's like for the number of Muslims that there are in the country, we get a disproportionate amount of airtime, and that airtime is completely negative. Uh, so you know, we need to counter it, and that this movie was was there to counter it. Now, as a woman. I wanted to also show that like women are not like monolithically covered and quiet and docile the way that they're presented when we have these like kind of floating ghost like creatures run in Saudi with the garb on. That's what we the idea we have of Muslim women and that's not what they are. They're again 
diverse and multitudinous and, you know, um, and in Iran, they drive. I mean, you don't know these things about Middle Eastern countries. We view the Middle East as like one violent blob. We don't know that there's like national boundaries. We don't know that each country has its own like thing going on. I mean, you know, we're given very little information. And like in Iran, the the highest rate of degree attainment belongs to women. Um, In Iran, women vote, women drive, women hold... um, uh, you, you know, uh, office. And that is not something that I think we understand that there's a difference between Saudi, for example, which I feel like ends up being like the biggest representation of Muslim women and the rest of the region. Um, and then never mind what that translates into in the diaspora, which means in the diaspora, there's a, we're a bunch of hyphenated folk like Iranian Americans and Palestinian Americans and whatever who bring the best of both worlds in, in, and, and we might drink, we might, you know, date men, we might, whatever it is that we're doing, we're, we're like making those choices and we're, you know, we have agency. So that was the other thing I wanted to point out with the movie. But I think the other weird thing is that, you know, there are so many Muslims that don't, you know, there's, there's a, this, I'm not so many, but there's a, a proportion of Muslims that don't, are not on the side of like women having this kind of voice. And in Texas, there's a proportion of Americans who are not on the side of women of ha- having a voice. So it's not weird. It's not like particular to Islam that we want to shut women down. It's particular to humanity that we want to shut women down for whatever reason. And I just want to, and I just wanted to sort of go on the record of saying like, there's so many great things that I want to bring over from like my culture and there are some terrible things that we should not bring over from any culture. And um, men mis- misogyny is one of those things. And I think, you know, it's it's funny that you should mention the, the, the Netflix comments. I think a lot of people have been afraid to tell me that. I mean, I get emails and I get whatever. And I, I get emails that run the gamut from like, you're amazing and heroic and courageous to like, you're a whore um, and suck my cock. So <laughs> there's... Um, you know, I... That's classy. You, I hate you. Suck my suck cock. Suck my cock. Yeah. <laughs> I hate you so much. Nothing would show my hate more <laughs> than you than sucking having, my cock. Yeah. Um, and I feel like... Um, I, I feel like since the movie has come out... And it's it's funny because I feel like I've always gone into, into stand-up as like... I'm just going to tell a story about my life. What's the big deal? You know, that's kind of been my position. And I think that kind of um, naivete or like just delusion that everything's going to be fine or like people are not going to be riled up or what. How could I rile anyone up? Like I'm five foot three and a half and I dress like a cartoon character. What, what is, what is, you know, what am I doing that's riling people up exactly um and i think that the answer to that is like what did any woman ever do to rile anybody up like not not very much you know what i mean um so uh it it's it so the so the goals of the movie you know were to build a dialogue were to show a different face of islam whatever and now i think one of the goals of the movie is like sort of kind of get, getting out alive, you know, like as a woman. Uh, I, I'm sorry, it's come to that. That's, that's a <laughs> <laughs> that's a crummy spot to be in. Uh, and and sorry to be the to be the the dark messenger on that on that uh, the say the Netflix comments. Oh no no, um, I mean I'm not surprised. I, I see those things all the time. I just didn't 
see those. I just haven't. I try. I, I try not to look anymore. No, I mean, and you shouldn't. It's a waste of your time. And that they're. I mean, they're horrible people. And I mean, it, it's like the 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 your project is complicated yeah. because like you're in this position of being of ending up being like some weird spokesperson for a thing i mean and, and as knowing you you feel very much like any other american to me you know what yeah, i mean yeah, yeah. like so it's you know so like on the one hand you are trying to deal with uh the the bigotry that exists in America and this ignorance, and on the other hand, you're trying to portray something about the diversity within people who get lumped together as Muslims who may have very little in common, and you're trying to express something about your own both pride and contentious relationship with the identity. Yeah, uh, that's like three different films, it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Is this being recorded? I need to write that down. <laughs> that is exactly the problem or the the complication. That is exactly the complication. And I didn't. Um, I don't. I don't really think I thought thought about it in quite that way going into it. Because you're right. I just feel like I'm any American, and I'm just going to talk about my perspective. And my story is my story, and it, and I'm one person. Right. So how could it be complicated? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, exactly. It, so, it, I mean, and, and it seems like, d- did you feel that there's a point where you had to make, did you have to make choices that you that you feel conflicted about in how you structured it that pulled it one way or the other? Um, I had to make did you, a were, choice. Did you reach a point where you're like, I don't want to go too far down that road? I, we, I, like, we didn't want for this to be like, um, you know, like these comedians go out and find the jerks of America. Like that's not what we wanted. We wanted it to be more of a um, real, honest conversations. We wanted like pe- to see people like listening and asking questions. And um, and there were moments, you know, I was detained at the border in Arizona, and that was one of those things where you're like, holy shit, that's well, how great for the movie. You were detained at the border. What a dramatic moment. Um, but it was sort of like, it was almost like we were asking for it. You know, we went out, I went out there with a hug a Muslim sign and I was like, stand, and I didn't know which property was, it's kind of hard to tell at the border, like what property is federal property and what isn't and whatever. And we we're on a sidewalk and who knows. And so, and and it was a very scary moment where all these cops came, your border patrol agents came and they, you know, they were yelling and there were guns and it was all very, very scary, but it, it felt like more of a Borat moment where we were trying to goad people and that's not what I wanted people to see. I did, this isn't about me trying to get people to be dicks to me. You know what I mean? This is about um, me like honestly trying to talk to people and in those conversations there's some awkward moments um but that's okay because there's so little information about muslims out there all people are getting is 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 misinformation and just very little of it so so if they have a question of like why do you need to call yourself iranian american why can't you just call yourself american that's not that doesn't make that guy racist um and the fact that he was that he could ask that question on camera and be brave enough to do that, I think was really, 
was really courageous and just, and, 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 and I'm grateful to everyone who talked to us and who were, who was brave enough to talk to us because those are the conversations I feel like where we get somewhere. Um, and that's the stuff we really wanted to highlight. It wasn't about, you know, we had footage of, of us being run out of a bare knuckle boxing match in Tennessee. But again, it was like going to these places and, and almost provoking, um, bad behavior. And I think you can provoke bad behavior and you'll get bad behavior. Um, but that's not what this movie was about. And so that was a decision we had, we made early on is just cut out all those scenes. Um, is this not the message we want to give? What the, one of the things I thought was interesting was the, was the, some of the, the relationship with Omar Elba. Yeah. Where he was like some, I mean, he came off as being a little bit, you know, critical of your version of Muslim. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was, it was an interesting choice to, to, you know, to show the conflict among the comedians. Yeah. Um, how did you, how did you feel about that as you were, as you were doing it? Well, it's funny because I did this in Nerdcore Rising too. There's a whole segment of people being like, I think Nerdcore is fucking dumb, you know? And, uh, and I, and it was, I think like the, the biggest thing for me is for me to, to always be like sitting with the audience and saying to them sort of like, this is not a love letter to the subject, you know, where there's criticism. I want to be honest about that criticism and that going in, like I knew this was going to be, I knew people were going to think that I'm not Muslim enough or whatever, all of that stuff. And, um, and, and so when, you know, when Omar had those, those thoughts at the beginning of the movie, like, if in, in you know in the early days of shooting, like we thought it was a really important conversation, and we knew that it was going to come up. Um, uh, so it's just a matter of when. And so yeah, I kind of like I wanted people to know that I'm self aware of my my where I stand on the Muslim spectrum, uh, and um, and there are going to be people critical of that, and I'm okay with the, with critics. Um, and that, you know, so we just didn't want it to be a love letter. Right. And what was your favorite interview with, the, with one of the famous people? Oh my God. Um, everyone was real. like that. The thing about every famous person that we interviewed is that they all lived up to the thing that you love about them. And that, that fundamental concern that you have, like, is this going to be a nice person? Um, and, uh, I had met John Stewart before because he I read for a correspondent job and I uh, got very far and he was the one that broke the bad news. I mean, I you know I read with him and all that stuff. He broke the bad news to me that I did not get the job and he was very nice about it. Uh, it was also the worst day of my life. But anyways, um <laughs> uh so I I knew that he was a really nice guy and he continues to be just a really like upstanding, like ridiculously like just smart um caring gentleman. Um and then I had never met, uh, I, you know, I'd seen Janine Garofalo live a bunch of times, um, you know, and we, I see Rachel Maddow on TV every day. Um, they are like, just, just kind of angelic. Like, like 
I, I don't even know. I, Rachel Maddow, you look at her on, on camera and you're like, I bet you she's fun to hang out with. And she just is. And she's so cool. And she's so funny. And she's just so sweet. And she just uh, did her research. Like she knew stuff about us. Like it was above and beyond. And I was shocked because these are busy people. Um, and uh, and same with Janine Groffel. Like she was just like, whatever you guys need. You know, she's just fun and and does not take this business so seriously that she can't be in a small beans documentary. You know what I mean? Like that, um, she treated it like, you know, like it mattered and, and it does matter. Um, but to have like celebrities at that, of that stature treat it like it really matters was so like just ridiculously heartwarming. So, so the last thing that we should talk about before we, we conclude is that, uh, this podcast is produced by the digital portal of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. <laughs> and apparently there's a thing about Jews and Muslims. There's <laughs> <laughs> like an issue of some sort. Yeah. And th- the interesting thing about, about it f- f- as a comic, and I wonder if you've encountered this, is like if you, if you mention is- Israel and Palestine on stage, yeah. or, or for me... I can feel everyone in the room tense up. Yeah, they're clenching like, their butts for real. Like, and and I can see if and you know, and I'm not super. My the jokes that I do about it are not especially strident. Uh, you know, I mean, I really try to be like, whatever your position is, at least we can all agree that blah blah, blah something basic bagels. You know? Yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, uh, and I can see people be, like hands on armrests ready to walk out yeah like where's this motherfucker you know and i don't know like it's sort of this joke in comedy now about you know people making the like aids slavery child molester trifecta jokes and all that kind of stuff yeah and it's like and particularly because of the perception about jews controlling hollywood like nobody wants to go near that right you know what i mean yeah yeah uh so do you do you have a do you have a uh would you like to be able to address it on stage more? Have you tried and failed? I have addressed it uh, on stage, and and uh, and like I said, I address I address it in an entire two person musical. Um, that like it is my life's mission to get produced on a larger scale so that more people can see it, so they can see me addressing the shit out of it for like ninety minutes. Um, but you're right. It's just, it's really hard. And you immediately feel like you're alienating people or somebody or you're pissing somebody off and you don't know why. And I think when I did this show in Edinburgh, um, I, I remember get the, the, a very funny thing happened. One night we did the show and then I got a handwritten note after the show from like an, uh, from a Palestinian who said, I really loved your show, thought it was hilarious, but I feel like you're too pro-Israeli um, and I think you should even it out. And then the next night I did the show, you know, again, it was a great show, whatever, um, standing room, like applause, everybody laughing. And then at the end of the show, I got another handwritten note <laughs> from someone in the audience that was like, I think you were too pro-Palestinian and I really feel like you need to even it out. So I feel like, you know, it doesn't even matter what you're trying to do. You're going to be offending both parties, which probably means you're doing something right. Um, and I, and I do, I do think we should get our pant, unruffle our panties and be able to talk about the the issue more 
you know, just more openly. What is, why can't we talk about it? I don't, I don't understand. Um, and what, are you, are you working on another documentary? I'm working on another film. Uh, it's a scripted film and it's, we're going to shoot in the summer and it's going to, it's about the blackout that resulted from Hurricane Sandy. Oh, good, good stuff. Yeah. Do you eat rats in it? <laughs> the blackout did not get it as intense on my end, uh, but uh, so no. But we do eat some stale crackers. Oh, that's rough. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, well, thanks a lot, buddy. It's great to talk Thank to you. Thank you so much for having me. That was Nagin Farsad on the NATO Sessions. Uh, this has been a production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. This episode has been engineered by Alex Thornton, uh, executive produced by Dan Wolf. You can follow me at NATO Green on Twitter. You can see me do stand-up every Wednesday at The Business at the Darkroom Theater on Mission Street. Um, follow us on uh, iTunes and SoundCloud to subscribe and get new episodes as they become available. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody.